Welcome to Alexander the Great Podcast, episode 4. Now, I hope everyone is doing well. Now, a free COVID test for all those interested. This is a public service announcement. Grab your friend, boyfriend, girlfriend, anything. You put a finger in their ass, and then you smell the finger. If you can smell it, then it means that you don't have COVID, and it's free. You can do this, you know, as many times as you like. I'm sorry. Now, all right, we're going to talk about Alexander the Great. Uh, please write a review, and I will send you a gift if it's done nicely, a nice little review. And um, you can always donate through Patreon and PayPal, and follow me on Facebook, Alexander the Great Podcast. See you guys. Hope you have fun. In the last episode, we talked about Philip. Now we will go over his battle against the Illyrians. Philip was preparing his soldiers for battle. It was common knowledge at that time that he's going to invade the Illyrians. So when Vardilis heard about it, he sent a messenger to Philip, telling him that, yo, we would love some peace, you know, I'm fucking old, I'm in no mood to fight. Philip replies, you know what, I love peace too, Yelp, and I'm going to give it to you as long as the Illyrians get out of all Macedonian cities. If you are Vardilis, you can't accept this shitty attitude from a hillbilly Macedonian. A couple of years ago, you pretty much destroyed them. Yeah, okay, you have a new king, but how much change can one person really do? So his messengers come back with not much done, so now they have to go to battle. The Illyrians have 10,000 infantry soldiers and 500 cavalry men. Vardilis sees how many men Philip has brought, 10,000 uh, infantry and 600 uh, cavalry. He sees that his infantry is not of the same caliber as Philip's, so he chooses a very defensive battle formation. You know, he could see that, oh yeah, these guys have been training a little bit, they're not quite the same. He basically forms a massive square with his men, so he has each man next to each other, and in the middle, nothing, empty space. He has stretched out his men this way because he thought any way Philip, uh, which any direction Philip decides to attack, he will have an Illyrian soldier to face. Though he suspected Philip was going to line up his men in a single line and they were going to have a frontal collision, so he put his best men in the center of the front line. Yes, this is a good defensive position, but the drawback is that it doesn't allow much movement, so Philip already has the upper hand. The battle took place in the plains of Lycos, close to today's lake of Ochrid, uh, Ochrida in Greek, then it was called Lichnitida. It's located southwest of North Macedonia and east of Albania. Philip, as we have said, has 10,000 foot soldiers and 600 uh, cavalry men. He put his best Macedonians on the right side so they can follow him and he orders the cavalry to attack the sides of the Illyrians. He charges with an oblique phalanx, 10 men deep. We talked last time about what the oblique phalanx is. And uh, when he saw that his left side was secure, he ordered his defensive soldiers to attack the left side of the Illyrians. Theodoros tells us that the battle was balanced, for the most part, with a slight edge given by the infantry. They break through the enemy lines and allow the Macedonian cavalry to flank the enemy. 
Vardelis saw that things were not going as planned and decided to flee, leaving behind 7,000 dead soldiers. That's how quick the Illyrian prestige was diminished. All it took was one well-thought-out battle with our boy Philip on the throne. We really don't know how Vardilis dies. Some say he died while fleeing, others that he was captured and then killed. Some even say he died in battle. Anyway, it's game over for Vardilis. Vardilis was Philip's father-in-law. <laughs> We talked about that last time, which does make things slightly strange. But that's ancient times for you, and it's about to get weirder. <laughs> the Illyrians ask uh, for peace, and Philip says sure, as long as every Illyrian leaves all Macedonian cities, including Upper Macedonia. The Illyrians agree, mainly because they don't really have a choice. And just to make things, you know, everything lovely and official, Philip marries again, this time Vardilis' other daughter, maybe granddaughter, we don't really know. We know her name was Avdata, and she later changes her name to Evridiki. This was done so she can hide her Illyrian ancestry. Philip just managed to include Upper Macedonia into his kingdom. This is big news, right? All the tribes from Lake Lichnitida, including the tribes of Aristida, they were usually controlled by the Molossian king of Epirus, of Epirus maybe in Greek, uh, the Palagones and the Elimiotes are now vassal states of Macedonia. The Elimiotes are the most economically developed tribe, and since Philip found a bit of money, he decided to marry again, this time a lady by the name of Phila. He has united Upper and Lower Macedonia, doubling his geographical scope while increasing his military manpower. He encourages the Macedonians to, meet, to, to move to these new places. This is done by promising them a tax break here and there, or by giving them free land as long as they move there and actually take advantage of the land. All this in his first year as king. I remind you, he's only 23 years old, right? I imagine one of the first jobs is to teach the new soldiers how to use the sarisam and the new funky tank tactics that the Macedonians are using. He has secured the Macedonian borders, along with the mines at Damastio, and with the increase of the raw materials it has, he will be able to use the merchant roads on the Axior River. A key pillar in the Macedonian economy will be metal mining for coinage purposes. Now, if you do what the king wants you to do, you will have a good life, like Parmenion. He's from Peonia, so not strictly Macedonian. He's very devoted to Philip and will eventually become one of Philip's most trusted generals. Philip would often say that I don't understand the Athenians. They choose ten generals through a lottery, but I only need one, Parmenion. Alexander does not love Parmenion. He doesn't really trust him. We're going to talk about him and how he will deal with him in the future episodes. Another family that did well under Philip's rule were the three sons of Aeropos from Ligistida, Araveos, Iromenis, and uh, Alexandros, Alexander in English. These fuckers went for the throne when Philip is assassinated. Uh, so that's the north sorted out. Now let's move down south and see how it went down. Now we're in the year 359. 359. And uh, let's start with Thessaly, or Thessalia in Greek. Thessaly used to be split in four states, Thessaliotida, Pelasiotida, Theotida, and Isteotida. Each state has a tetrarch, and he would answer to an elected king called Tagos. 
This was until the 5th century. In the 4th century that we're in, Thessalian power was split between two states. Ferez being one of them, a coastal town, and being a coastal town means that they have a lot of harbors and they're doing very well for themselves. The other state is Larissa, they are more inland, and they create the Thessalian League. These two states do not get along. In the past, Alexander II of Macedonia had offered help to Larissa, and Ferez were very close to getting help from Thebes. And because Alexander II had helped Larissa, they feel comfortable enough to ask Philip for help against Ferez. Uh, Philip jumps at the opportunity to get busy with the Thessalians. They are known for having the best cavalry in Greece. They would often be used as mercenaries, and the infantry was around 6,000 men. Philip wants to secure his, th- his southern borders, and he doesn't really have many friends at this point, so he needs all the help he can get. Now let's talk a bit about Thessaly's protagonist. Jason, or Iasonas in Greek, or Feres, was one of Thessaly's original BMFs. Bad motherfucker. Xenophon, or Xenophon, uh, calls him the greatest man of his age. We think that in 380, or somewhere around there, he calls himself Tagos. As we saw earlier, Tagos used to be the name of an elected king of Thessaly. It's not, it's not really the same when someone just decides to arbitrarily use the title. Did I say that right? Arbitrarily? <laughs> Sorry. But still, this guy controls Thessaly's entire army, plus 6,000 infantry mercenaries, and it's been said that he was planning an invasion into Persia. But the Thessalian League doesn't like him, so they have him assassinated. He was succeeded by his sons, Polyphron and Polydoros. Polydoros does not live long um, after this because his brother has him assassinated. Tough luck for Polyphron, as Polydoros has a son called Alexander that kills his uncle and is elected Tagos in 369. Alexandros of Ferez, as he's mostly known, has his, has his sights set north as we can tell by the way he's treating Larissa. So Philip is thinking it's only a matter of time before he gets to Macedonia. And this is how the alliance between Larissa and Macedonia, or better yet, the alliance between the League of Thessaly and Philip is born. Philip is happy, so he decides to marry again. This time a Larissa, a Larissian, I guess you could say, Philina. We're now up to four, four marriages, right? For those who are counting. From this marriage, a boy called Arivaeus was born in the year 359. We're going to talk a lot about Arivaeus. He plays a big part in our story. Arivaeus, poor chap, even though he's Philip's first son, he has a problem. We don't really know what, some kind of mental illness. Plutarch says that he was poisoned by Olympias, Alexander's mom. So Alexander can definitely get the throne. Now, speaking of Olympias, let's discuss her background. It was at this time, 359, uh, no, 357 or 358, somewhere somewhere close to there, Philip forges an alliance with Arivas, king of the Molossian tribes in Epirus. This is the closest to Macedonia tribe of Epirus, the other two being the Thesproteans and the Chaones. Part of the deal was, yeah, we're friends now, but Philip has to marry my dead brother's Neoptolemus's daughter. There are some stories about Olympia, stories of her being a witch, stories of her fucking snakes, just weird, peculiar stories. One of my favorite is that the day she married Philip, 
a thunderbolt struck her, leaving her pregnant with Zeus's baby. Therefore, Alexander is Zeus's baby, not Philip's. Uh, Philip also had a dream once, after he married uh, Olympias, that he sealed her vagina, and the wax seal was shaped after a lion. <laughs> Philip runs off to tell his favorite fortune teller Aristandos, or Aristander, I guess you could say. Uh, Alex Alexander will also use this guy in the future, Ar 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 Aristander, Aristandos, and he will tell Philip that... Um, this means that Olympias is pregnant and the child will be as courageous as a lion. No one seals an empty vase. Uh, another interesting story that Philip was looking for his wife one day. He needed to be milked <laughs> uh, by a woman this time. Bafsanias was busy that day. Uh, and he sees Olympias spooning with a bunch of snakes. Now, this freaked him out so much that apparently he never tried meeting his wife midway through the night. Alright, this time love, I'm going to let you know. I'm going to be visiting you around 10. Please no fucking snakes on the bed this time. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm selling her cheap. She was a hell of a woman. She lived more than Philip and Alexander, so she's doing something right. Her original name was Polixeni, but it changed to Mirtali when she married Philip. This was, uh, then it was changed to Olympias or Libiada in Greek, after Philip's horse won in the Olympic Games. He then tried to change again to Stratoniki because he wanted to honor the gods because of his, his many military victories. This last name she didn't keep, you know, poor woman, she had enough by that point. And she was born in 373. She was a wild thing apparently, ever since she was a little girl. She had a thing about death and the metaphysics. This will lead her to live in the Oracle of Vavoni. She was initiated in the Ulyssian Mysteries, Eleusinia, Eleusinia Mysteria, Ulyssian Mysteries, the most famous and secret religious rites of ancient Greece, according to Encyclopedia Britannica. Apparently, psychedelics were used during these mysteries. Uh, Sophocles, the Trojan, tragedian, sorry, has said that anyone who takes part in the Ulyssian Mysteries does so because they want to have a better luck in the afterlife. Now, the basic theme of these mysteries has to do with Dimitra and Persephone. I'm just going to go through the story quickly. Plutonas, or Pluto, saw Persephone being a hot piece of ass as she was walking through the fields of Nisio. She was collecting flowers, and the earth opens up and out comes Plutonas. He grabs uh, Persephone and takes her in the underworld with him. For nine days, her mother Dimitra was looking for her daughter. In the end, the sun, Helios, Helios in Greek, as a person, like the sun stopped what he was doing, uh, and being, you know, lovely and shiny, and told her what happened. And during these nine days, uh, everything had withered and dried up. Dimitra was a goddess of agriculture. She promised that if she didn't get her daughter back, nothing would ever regrow on the face of the planet. So Zeus talks to his brother, bro, you gotta let it go. And uh, Philip, uh, no, no, Philip, Pluto agrees, but he tricked Persephone to eat six seeds of pomegranate. Because the pomegranate was from the underground, this binds her to Pluto. Therefore, she has to spend six months in his kingdom. 
you know, reminds me a bit of the day trip, day trip drug, right? Uh, anyway, that's why we have six months of cold weather and six months of hot weather. When it's lovely and hot, it's because Dimitra is with uh, Persephone and all is well. And six months of crappy weather is when Persephone is with Pluto. The story is connected to the uh, Ulyssian mysteries because Dimitra reached Elefsina. I don't, I don't even know how you say that in English. Ulyssina. Elefsina, it's in Greek. Looking for Persephone. She was found by the daughters of King Geleos. And without telling them... Uh, who she was, she overheard a discussion the king and queen were having. They were complaining about how to raise their newborn son, Dimofodas. Dimitra somehow convinces them to allow her to take care of the baby. So she decides to rub the baby with ambrosia, ambrosia uh, the food of the gods, and then throw, a, throw the baby in fire every morning. <laughs> the mother saw this, and had a fit, right? So she started yelling at the goddess. Again, it's worth mentioning that the mother didn't know that the nanny was Dimitra. Dimitra then decides to reveal her true identity, and the mother begs for forgiveness. She asks if there's anything she can do, uh, and Dimitra requested that the mother build a temple in her honor. Now, she was obviously very happy to do that, and since then, Elefsina was seen as a place of worship to Dimitra. Now, back to Olympias now. She was priestess at the Caverian Mysteries, and that's where she met Philip at one of these gatherings. The Caverian Mysteries are a little different from the Ulyssian. They focus more on birth than death. Again, we don't know a great deal about them, but we do know that they induced fear into the greater public. When Alexander attacks Thebes, in a few, we're going to have a few episodes until we get there, some of his soldiers went into a temple dedicated to the Caverian Mysteries and they were struck by lightning. Beep, someone's beeping, someone's not happy. And uh, that's, you know, that's about it for Olympias. We're going to talk more about her as we move along. Now, another city uh, south of Macedonia is Athens. Now, in 359, it has returned to its former glory before the Peloponnesian War. They were probably slightly pissed off with Philip, as in both cases with Larissa and the Molossian kings, they had some form of influence. Now, they are replaced by Philip. Athens is very different to Macedonia, politically and spiritually. Athens' system of government was a directly run democratic system, meaning that a people's republic kind of thing. The final word comes from the people and the decisions are made after meeting at the citizens assembly which we now call Ecclesia. From now on we're going to call this Ecclesia. Um, Macedonia has a monarchy, I would call it more of a respected dictatorship. The king would listen and respected his citizens. His fate is at the hands of his citizens. If he's doing a crappy job, the people will either... If you're a king in Macedonia doing a crappy job, the people will either kill you by stoning you, or the person who thinks can do a better job than you will have you assassinated. Athens, up to this point, has given the world Plato, Sophocles, Evripides, and many others. And Macedonia is still ripping dogs in half before they go to battle. I know I mentioned this in the last episode, but fuck me, I love my dog, and I still can't get my head around it. Uh, as we can see, they have massive cultural differences. 
Philip will always want to make Athens like him, and Athens, like the mean girl she is, will play hard to get. Demosthenes has characterized him as a barbarian, barbarian meaning that he speaks in a language that doesn't make any sense, it all sounds like ba 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 to them, and also by using barbarian he's saying that he doesn't even consider them Greek. The Scopians, Pseudo-Macedonians, North Macedonians, whatever you want to call them, have used Demosthenes, 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 Demosthenes sounds nicer. Demosthenes, a bit hard on the D, you know. Um, they've used Demosthenes as proof that all Greeks must have the same opinion as him. Therefore, Macedonians, they're not Greek. But Demosthenes is using rhetoric, meaning that he would say anything to get people to agree with him. So he can't be seen as absolutely truthful. Now let's go back to our thing. Those who decide what the Ecclesia is going to discuss come from the parliament. The Athenian parliament is made out of 500 men. These 500 men were chosen through a lottery. Their right to hold office, they had the right to hold office twice in their lifetime. It's been said that at least one-fourth of Athenian citizens held office at one point in their life. That's a massive number of people, right, with political responsibility. We see how different today's democracy is from the original democracy. But the real power comes from the ecclesia. Here we can identify who is the most powerful individual. He who, with the power of his words, can convince the citizens of Athens to agree with him. Whoever did the most convincing was the most popular. These people were known as orators or rhetores in Greek. They were also known as uh, they were also known as demagogues, as they usually, and they usually represented the wealthy citizens of Athens as long as they were getting paid, of course. From this era, the most famous orator was Demosthenes. Demosthenes was Philip's biggest enemy. Demosthenes, son of Demosthenes, a wealthy knife maker. Uh, he died, so the dad died when our Demosthenes was only seven years old, and he had quite a bit of money. His dad's best friend, Thiripidis, and his first cousins, Aphovos and Demophon, they were scumbags, and they abused his dad's fortune. Demosthenes teaches, him, teaches himself the art of rhetoric, so he can take them to court, which he does manage, and even though he won the court case, but unfortunately, there wasn't much money left by the time it all blew over, and thus he's forced to sell speeches to make a living. He tried taking, he tried talking a few times in the ecclesia, but he had trouble with his L's and R's, and people ended up taking the piss out of him. But he kept trying and managed to overcome his speech impediment and entered the political scene when he dealt with Philip. Now we're at the end of 358. Demosthenes. Demosthenes claims that Athens and Philip make a secret, secret agreement by which Philip will surrender Amphipolis to them and they in turn would give Pydna. The agreement had to be kept a secret so the Pythnonians don't react. Now Mr. Worthington, a great man, I love his book, love his book, great book on, on Philip, calls it a rhetorical lie because an agreement of that nature would have to go through the Ecclesia so there's little chance it would be kept a secret. Also, we see Philip besieging Amphipolis and then go straight after Pivna. If they had promised him the city, he wouldn't have any reason to attack it. 
Now let's say a few words about Amphipolis. During the first Balkan War, some Greek soldiers noticed some marbles pointing out close to the Stramona River, and in 1913, excavations began by Greek archaeologists. They discovered a base of a massive marble lion, and in 1916, English soldiers found some parts of the lion, and they tried to take back a few pieces to England, but failed because they were attacked by the Bulgarians. Fucking English, always trying to steal our shit, piss off. And uh, during the 1930s, a company by the name of Monks Yulin, during uh, river drainage works, found some pieces of a bridge and a large piece of a lion. I will post pictures on my website and on Facebook. And thanks to a certain gentleman by the name of Lincoln McVie, the American ambassador at the time, and funding by the Greek government, the lion of Amphipolis was restored. But you've probably heard of the tomb of Amphipolis. This was discovered by locals in 1953, and in 1964, the official digging began by Mr. Dimitris Lazaridis. This, ma this man finds a structure 10 meters wide and 5 meters high, and he found that the lion that we mentioned earlier was on top of this tomb. He then continues the digging for another 20 acres, and he finds 70 more tombs. In 2012, a lady by the name of Caterina Peristeri found that the limits of the tomb started 12 meters below the surface that the digging began, meaning there's a lot more stuff to come out. The tomb is dated around 325 to 300 BC. Miss Peristeri found three more chambers that are connected, one of which has a smaller chamber inside it. We don't know who was buried in these tombs. Some are saying Olympias because of the cariads, uh, because the cariads are drawn on the walls. Cariads are priestess of Dionysus, called god of wine and ecstasy, and we know Olympias loved all that stuff. In 2015, Miss Peristeri announced that the monument of Amphipolis was made to honor Ephestionas, Ephestion, I don't know why, Ephestionas, Alexander's close very close friend <laughs> and um, and it was sculpted by Dinocrates, one of the best of his time personally I don't think it went down that way we know Alexander died a few years after Ephestionas and I don't think his successors would be interested in wasting money building monuments for Alexander's best friend You know, they had their own problems that's the episode uh, everybody I hope you liked it, again you know a bit of information about Philip and a, and a bit of general information about Greece. You know, this is very important to understand everything better. You know, so what's Athens, what's here, what's Thessaly, where did they come from? I hope you liked it. Uh, the winner of, um, that's going to get a little gift for me, is Mr. Corden Stolp. Uh, he wrote a review saying, fun and engaging was the title. Fascinating history of Alexander with both history and contemporary analysis. Podcaster has a fresh, youthful perspective that keeps it lively. Looking forward to future episodes. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Corden. Um, send me your address and you will get a little gift for me. And uh, yeah, please, if you like the podcast, write a review. And you can even donate through Patreon and PayPal. Um, Enjoy yourself, guys. See ya. Bye-bye.